Does your ass smell? Do you want to feel fresh and clean all day long? Of course you do. That's why you need soap. Soap is specifically formulated to gently clean, leaving you feeling refreshed and confident. Washing your ass with soap provides more than just a clean feeling and helps to maintain good hygiene and can even reduce the risk of skin irritation and infection. Soap, the simple solution for a clean and refreshed ass. Try it today and feel the difference. Soap, available wherever they sell soap. The best bitch. Second-rate show. Juggernaut of a podcast. Where we watch a movie. And see if we like it. One, please. I'm ready for you. I'm not ready for you, I can tell you that. Hello, and welcome to the Best Bit Second-rate show, where we take a second look at a film we didn't see the first time. This is Kevin, and I'm joined by Will. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing? I am... Fantastic. You sound fantastic. You sound luxurious. Do I? Yeah. Luxurious, okay. Yeah. It might be because we're being serenaded right now by the number one song of April 1985. Can you guess what it is? April 1985, it was... It was Feed the World. You're very close, actually. In the US, it was We Are the World. Shit! No way! But we're not in the US. So, the number one song was by Phil Collins, and it was Easy Lover. Just like, it's it's almost like your life story. It's <laughs> me all over. I don't know what I mean by that. <laughs> well, that will give you an indication of the era of the first film that we're going to do, because mm-hmm. we usually lead off with the one that came out first. And for this episode, we are looking at a film that I've not seen and a film that you've not seen again filling in the blind spots yes for me I chose one that you had brought up in best reunion scene I wanted to ask you did this come up in body swap I don't think so no I don't think it did well for me it's Lady Hawk that's the film that I chose to watch that mm-hmm. you recommended and for you, it's the one that came up in Best Musical Number. Yes, Little Shop of Horrors. With the Rick Moranis mm-hmm. one directed by Frank Oz. Yep, one of my favourite musicals. And you'd not seen it before. And it turns out, before we get into it, that you had seen the version which has only recently been restored. Yeah. Which is the original ending to the film that was canned after they did test screenings. So you saw a version that I didn't even know existed until last night when I watched the film. So I'm kind of reeling from that. But so am I. the first film we're going to talk about is Lady Hawk. Mm. And I'll play a trailer. Matthew Broderick, a pickpocket who thought that anything was better than prison. Little did he know what he'd escaped from wasn't half as strange or frightening as what he'd stumbled into. I do not believe what I believe, Lord. These are magical, unexplainable matters, and I beg you not to make me a part of them. The knight who had saved him wanted only two things, to free his lover and to take his revenge. I have waited almost two years for a sign from God. Sir, the truth is I talk to God all the time. And no offense, but he never mentioned you. The pickpocket was the key to his plan. 
But would you send a thief to guard your treasure? He was the last one in the world to act like a hero. It just happened. By itself. And he was drawn into a magical, romantic adventure. Matthew Broderick. Michelle Pfeiffer. Rutger Howard. Lady Hawk. Captain Etienne Navarre, played by Rutger Hauer, is a man on whose shoulders lies a cruel curse. Punished for loving each other, Navarre must become a wolf by night whilst his lover, Lady Isabeau, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, takes the form of a hawk by day. Together with the thief Gaston, played by Matthew Broderick, they must try to overthrow the corrupt bishop and in doing so break the spell. Directed by Richard Donner, it was edited by Stuart Baird, director of Star Trek Nemesis, the beloved Star Trek Nemesis. And it was written by Edward Kamara, Michael Thomas and Tom Mankiewicz, who also has a consultant credit on the film. And the minute that I saw that, Will, mm. I thought, oh, that's the same credit that he got on Superman when he wrote the script of Superman. Donna gave him a creative consultant credit. So he obviously brought him back. He did the same thing again, which was essentially just rewrite the script and... He gave him that special credit. Can I add to that with the writers, Kevin? There's a fourth person credited in what I've seen, and it was David Webb Peoples, who wrote Unforgiven and Blade, I think Blade Runner as well, if I'm right. So he's uncredited then? Mm, yeah, he was, his name has popped up, definitely. So either he's, he might have done a pass. I don't know who originated uh, the film. Can I tell you, first of all, my history with Lady Hawk? I've said this in reunion scenes, so it wasn't that long ago, but I have a deep connection with the trailer for Lady Hawk more than the film Lady Hawk. Which I still have not seen. That trailer was on the same rental videotape as Return of the Jedi. So I would have seen it at a pretty young age, maybe only once or twice, but I found it dark and scary. I found it pretty compelling. The location shooting of it, it felt really, felt real to me, you know, as a kid. It's shot in Italy, isn't it? Yeah, it was shot in Italy. By, um, shot by an amazing cinematographer. Forgive my pronunciation, but it's Vittorio Storaro, who shot Apocalypse Now, Last Tango in Paris, The Last Emperor, uh, a few Woody Allen films. But he's, he's worked on a, a ton of of high profile stuff so it's beautifully shot even to this day I still I'm so impressed by the the visuals did the trailer have the music from the Alan Parsons project all over yes and that's I think one of the things I love so the score is done by Andrew Powell um, produced by uh, the um, Alan Parsons and I love the score for this absolutely love that synthy oh okay yeah I love it okay because it's a very controversial score I like the hell out of it. I'd love to know why it's controversial. But um, so this film it doesn't fit the film. That's it's 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 an incongruous thing of the eighties. That kind of I I like. I kind of like it. I was looking up the score, and the score is considered to be one of the reasons why the film was box office bomb, and why it was critically slated. What? Lawrence Shulodonna, who produced it, wanted the music changed. Rutger Hauer thought the music was terrible. Richard Donner stuck to his guns. But the reason that it has the music it has is because when he was scouting for the film, he was listening to the Alan Parsons project a lot and he couldn't separate the music from the images. Wow. The opening theme is great. I was into it with the opening theme. 
But then for the rest of it, it just did not fit. So it sounds like from what you're saying, you love this movie. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for this film. A real, it has pacing <laughs> issues for me, but I, I love the music. I does it? Love it. <laughs> it does. Do you want to know what my first note was? Go on. The first note that I wrote down was, I'm 10 minutes into this and one thing has happened and you could have cut that sequence down to about 45 seconds and the film would have kicked off with a, with a gallop. The, the pacing on this film is a major issue for me and also the blocking. So I don't, I don't know how to, to put this. I didn't like the film at all, Will. <laughs> We're not going to fall out over it. We're not going to fall out over it. This isn't a Paddington <laughs> 2 situation where I, where I, I think I would, I, I would go to bass for this it's film. It's two hours long. Mm-hmm. It's two hours long and the story doesn't get going until 40 minutes in. At 40 minutes in, Rutger Hauer, who gets introduced in a very sort of off-handed, almost awkward way, which is he's just seen in a wide shot looking at the castle that Matthew Broderick has broken out of. And you don't even see his face. It's just this, this odd shot of like, it looks like coverage has been cut into the film. And then he pops up again. And I still don't understand how he knew. He says that he heard the music. And that was what tipped him off, that somebody had escaped from the city and he thought he needed to find the person who did that because it's so rare that that person would be able to help him break into the city. But that gambit isn't laid down between Rutger and Broderick until 40 minutes into the film. I was so shocked at how drawn out the film was. I wasn't sure what the story was about. I was sort of completely smitten when you mention it in reunions based on the premise that premise is really awkwardly doled out in this film where why do you introduce Rutger Hauer that way when he is the protagonist of the movie and I don't understand why Matthew Broderick is the lead of the movie this is one of the things I've and he feels totally miscast as well oh I so disagree this is this is one of the things you're he's so sort of like 1985 like poppy and he's a peasant boy a peasant pickpocket and there's another thing I can imagine the script was a lot of fun to read in certain sections. I can imagine it was still quite tedious, but I can imagine the dialogue that he has, he's very verbal. Mm-hmm. But when he's on screen and he's saying all this stuff, it's just like, shut, shut up, up, dude, shut, shut up. up. Why, Why are you, are you talking, talking so much? Who are you talking, talking to? to? He's like, he's yucking it up like he's Mel Brooks. I'm so, I'm so opposite to you on this. I love the fact that Matthew Broderick's character is the lead of this. I enjoy his energy because in this really kind of oppressive world where this horrible thing has happened he we're seeing we're seeing the whole story through his eyes and i like sitting on his shoulder i like being there with him because he brings a lightness a lightness of touch to what would otherwise be a fairly dour affair and his upbeat nature kind of works in congress for me only works in Congress to the the oppressiveness and the awful medieval antics going on of you know bishops putting curses on people and you know this, this, these these lovers who are you know split apart. The bishop who's the antagonist of the movie and he's in the first ten minutes and he's in the last five minutes. But look at the costume design; isn't that good enough for you? 
No, Bishop. The bishop's costume is amazing. Okay, great,、uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. I love the bishop's costume. It's that. that I can't like, even remember his costume. Oh, it's got this kind of this the the collar of it's got this like tiered stepped kind of collar. I think that is so cool. This film is so evocative. I love the production design of this film. I enjoy Matthew Broderick. Jesus. I enjoy the score. I love how it how it looks. I love Rucker Howard. His presence and his charisma. I think Michelle Pfeiffer, despite, despite the haircut, the is still a beautiful woman to to look at. She's barely in it. She's there. She's just dressed as a hawk. You know how long she was in the chair getting those feathers on? My God! <laughs> the transformation scenes has two moments where the, that she transforms, and it, I saw better transformation scenes in Manimal. You're coming from an American werewolf in London. <laughs> You're going to that. I am actually. Yeah, yeah. They they don't stand too well by comparison. Did you know that Kurt Russell was originally cast as the Rutger Hauer role, and Rutger was the the head of the guards, the bishop's guards. Oh,、and、right. Okay, right. Go on. Kurt Russell saw himself in the knight armor, and he pulled out the movie four days before he started shooting. What? Yeah. And Richard Donner wanted Dustin Hoffman to play the Matthew Broderick role. Oh my God! Well, okay. So he was kind of like, "I'm walking here. I'm walking here." But he's、uh, coming out of the, the was, medieval castle. He was. He approached Dustin Hoffman,、um, and then he also approached Sean Penn. Odd casting. You have to think about the era that Sean Penn is in. Like this is like two years after or three years after Fast Times at Richmond High.、Um, Sean Penn. So he's he's young,、um, and this is before. I'm pretty sure this is before Ferris Bueller's Day Off as well, so it's just after War Games for Roderick. Yeah, he seemed to have just shot up from War Games. There was a gap of about two years. I think War Games was '83, and then this is '85, and then the next year he does Ferris Bueller '86.、Mm-hmm. I thought he was so miscast. I couldn't believe him in, in this role. I couldn't believe any of them, to be honest. This is so funny. <laughs> I believed every one of them. Matthew Broderick's character, Mouse, is his nickname. So you've、yeah. got a hawk, a wolf, and a mouse. And I thought, is this adapted from the the riddle, the chicken, the fox, and the bag of grain? <laughs> right. He is a man of faith. He believes in God. He's praying to God at the start to help him get through this prison break, where he's going through the sewers.、Mm-hmm. The villain is a bishop who's used a dark magic curse that we never see the curse being carried out. Be nice to have seen that curse play out or be bestowed upon them. Rutger Hauer is considered to be Satan. There's a lot of religious aspects to it, but I couldn't sort of thread through what it was trying to say.、Uh, whether it's like love is the true God or, or or whatever, but I just thought, Jesus Christ, get on with it! It's two full hours walking and talking. I'll tell you where I thought this is not well directed. When Matthew Broderick has escaped to a small little township, it's probably even just an inn,、mm-hmm. and he's boasting to to the barman that he has managed to escape from Aguile, the castle where、yeah. the bishop is is held up, and the bishop has sent guards out after Matthew Broderick because if word gets out that someone can escape from Aguile, then it it the reputation of the castle or the town. It, it, it's diminished, so he wants them found and killed. He's at this bar. He boasts that he's broken out of Aguila, and、uh, a bunch of men 
wearing shawls over uh, sort of like bar tables outside turn around and say oh that's very interesting because we're the guards from Aguile mm-hmm. and they've been looking for them they throw off their shawls and everything is shot in a wide shot it's just wide 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 all wides mm-hmm. and a sort of a a fight breaks up where he is climbing onto the gazebo and they're trying to stick swords up and he kicks one of the guys and then he runs into another guy wearing a shawl and he throws off a shawl and he you see the red cloaks of the guards and it's like on the page that would be very fun where it's like he's running into people and he doesn't know which ones are just ordinary people and which ones are guards and they toss off their shawls and it's another guard and he goes to the next one and toss off the shawl and it's another guard when you're watching it it's shot in this wide it's like when you're trying to do something comedic or, or action heavy you need coverage you need to be able to set the tempo with the edit there's got to be that kineticism or that that sort of rat-a-tat-tatness and shooting it all in just these locked off wides it just looked like awkwardly staged fight choreography and I just thought this is not very well directed man I disagree with you I even disagree with you on that scene but you know what I mean it needs to have like a boom 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 and I, I remember that scene I don't remember the coverage specifically but I remember well, him climbing I'll cut in a clip here ball. and people can people can view the, the scene here yeah cut in the clip and let people decide what they think the scene looked like just from the audio alone um, I remember that scene and I just remember it being wide no I'm only speculating now on something I've seen many months ago that the idea was to have this kind of wide shot where we see the 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 the, the escape and Broderick's character the most like you know climbing over the gazebo and all that sort of hijinks and then we cut close to Rooker Hauer like you know interjecting and then we get like the, the, the no sharp. we don't do we not because I can't remember exactly in my mind's eye we cut close to Rooker Hauer kind of like intervening he's about to get his head cut off one of the guys throws him up against the post and takes the sword and then there's and a crossbow arrow hits the guy in the shoulder and it turns around and Rutger Hauer is standing in a wide shot uh, on the other side of the set and yeah I just thought it could be more dynamically directed and there were better ways there were better places to put the camera yeah but but I, I'm coming into this with an awareness that this is a film that might not work for that definitely will not work for everyone but and maybe it is tinged with nostalgia but I don't know like I I I didn't watch this film religiously when I was a kid I watched this film maybe a handful of times and really really enjoyed it and going back to it I only revisited it I have it on DVD so I revisited 20 years ago but then I revisited it last year for the reunion episode and I had such I found it to be so charming I found it to be very very it's a very simple fairy tale. Like it doesn't really have any greater depth than it being a very simple fairy tale. And the fact that it's told from the point of view of Matthew Broderick's character, it's so fairy tale like in my eyes. It was I think it's a great story decision. Even not seeing I love the I know I know this is in contrast to um what you're saying and I agree with you. It, it, it I think the economy of not seeing the the spell that's been put on these lovers is kind of more magical because Matthew Broderick's character is just encountering them and we don't feel the labor of having that fucking backstory kind of doled out to us and seeing it all happening. It's kind of like, oh shit, I'm encountering these characters and they're in a kind of a pickle situation and I'm going to help them out and we kind of leave them. It's it's light and it's, uh, I don't know, it's, 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 there's a lightness to this that I, that I just, that appeals to me. 
So uh, yeah, I'm in completely disagreement with Jay. I like the story. I don't have any issue with the story. I think the story is rock solid. It's a, it, it's the reason that I wanted to watch this because I thought that's a great conceit. Who put out the original film? Was it Warner Brothers? Yeah, it's Warner Brothers. Because I actually listened to an interview this morning where he was saying, oh, this is a Warner Brothers film. So Warner Brothers then marketed the film as based on a classic original myth, which it isn't. And the original writer, Edward Kamara, sued. You know, he went to the WGA and they went to Warner's and said, you can't say this because you're diminishing what Edward Kamara's, what he's brought to the, to the film. And so they mm-hmm. gave him a cash settlement, but they still ended up using that bullshit with the marketing, which was that this is based on a classic myth. So I thought that was interesting. Wow. There's a line in oh the film God. which I thought was a bit clunky. Wait, Rutger Hauer said, uh, do you know that hawks and wolves mate for life? And I thought, would they do what? Hawks and wolves mate for life? Oh, does he mean that hawks and wolves mate within their species for life, not each other? <laughs> yeah, that's what he meant, yeah. But you could rewrite that to be a little clearer than, do you know the hawks and wolves mate for life? <laughs> didn't I didn't make that that didn't confuse me <laughs> it didn't oh, confuse me but I thought that's a clunkily written line do you know that hawks and wolves mate for life um, uh, Edward Kamari came up with another film do you know the thing that hawks and wolves have in common is that they mate for life even in common it's kind of weird this is the other thing everybody lives in ruined castles it's like they I'm do, sure the yeah. castles would have been actually better kept at the time that this was set but they didn't want to um spend the money on that uh yeah i i thought it was quite lackluster and drawn out and the pace is very languid and plodding i thought the transformation stuff was was very awkward there were things that happened in the film where i just thought have i missed a bit it's grand it's grand i gave it two stars on letterbox and and I feel that that was a very fair, justified reaction. For me, it's a it's I give it I give it like three and a half. I I give it three and a half, and then for nostalgia, I give it four. I I just I just think I'm looking at my notes here, and it was 33 minutes, and the story begins. We find out why Rukawa is following Broderick's character. Uh, not 40. It felt like 40. <laughs> <laughs> it's but it was 33 minutes. We've been with Matthew Broderick. We've been witnessing Matthew Broderick's character escape from the castle. He's hijinks. He's 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 on the hoof. He's on the run. For me, that's his stories. He's like, I need. What's to the escape first line him. he says in the movie? It's something Thank like, you, um, Jesus, or... "This reminds me of when my mother gave birth." Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think it's a funny line. It's not unlike escaping mother's womb. I like that line. It's like he's squeezing. And that's the thing. He's doing this contortion. He's squeezing out of a sewer. And it sets the tone for his character, which is just like... I feel bad because I'm like just coming in here now and like crapping on something that you obviously love. Listen, you're entitled to be wrong. Edward Kamara, right? The the guy you sang who was went to had to get a settlement. He had another film come out this very same year, which is kind of uh, also... Yeah, the very same year. You know... En- en- yeah. Enemy mine. Enemy mine. It's a it's a bit of a mouthful. Say it three times fast. Enemy mine. Enemy mine. Enemy mine. My tongue does not do such things. But yeah, Lady Hawk. It opened behind Police Academy 2 in its third week of release. Right. As well as Masks. 
on a film called Cat's Eye. Oh. Stephen King's Cat's Eye. You said Eye. Mask. Oh, do you mean Mask? What film was yeah. this? The other one you said before. Masks. Masks? Or maybe it was Mask. You are stupid. It's the, the share one. Oh, yeah. It's just called Mask. Yeah. I remember my disappointment because I heard there was a movie called Mask. I went into rent it and it wasn't the mask I wanted. We all know, anyone who was a child of the 80s knows the mask that they wanted. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humour and you smell. I was wondering why there were so many fantasy films of the mm. early 80s. Like what kicked it off? Because the year that this came out, you also had Legend and you had Red Sonja and Return to Oz. Willow followed straight after that, Highlander, Labyrinth. Before that, you had Conan the Destroyer, Neverending Story, Crawl, Beastmaster, Conan the Barbarian, The Dark Crystal, Clash of the Titans, Excalibur, Dragon Slayer, Time Bandits. There was a real run of these fantasy adventure films. Mm-hmm. Was it Conan? We haven't had that since. How did Conan do? I don't know. I was trying to figure out what was the big, huge hit that inspired it. The only thing that I would I would say, I think it might be a, a hangover from the success of Star Wars. And that Star Wars very clearly was like this, you know, space fantasy adventure movie. So everyone was trying to get in on a bit of that action. That was a type of film that audiences were going to see. It's always Star Wars. Right. And, and, and rightly, it should be. So I'm disappointed that the film didn't work for you, Kevin. But I'm not surprised. Why are you not surprised? It's, an, it's not a perfect film. Listen, it's not. And yes, maybe my view of it might be tinged by nostalgia. But when I rewatched it recently, I still enjoyed it. And I like the fucking... I'll stand by the music. I like the soundtrack. Well, you know, I have to admit that I appreciate your directness. I will try and be as direct and honest with you as I possibly can be. You know, in the short time we've been together, you have demonstrated every loathsome characteristic of the male personality and even discovered a few new ones. You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. (laughs) Could you imagine Kurt Russell in the role? I, no, I, I think it wouldn't have worked with Kurt Russell. I think Rooker Hauer is fantastic in, in the role. I think he's got this this quality, this stoic, dangerous quality to him. Because we're kind of, Kurt Russell and Broderick might clash against each other. I know Kurt Russell can be, you know, if you think of his characters in the Carpenter films, he can be quite uh, stoic. But he's got a kind of a bubbliness to him regardless. And uh, it might have clashed with Broderick. He has a glint in his eye, Rooker, I think, that works for this. At the end, I, I got confused where Rumpole of the Bailey, the actor that played that character, he has figured out how you break the curse. Mm. And it doesn't involve killing the bishop. Yet yeah, Rucker kills the bishop at the end. But there's something to do with it'll be when there's a day without night and a night without day. Mm-hmm. But they have a solar eclipse. So uh, where does the night without day come into it? Kevin, I think you're poking holes in something that uh, that has already sunk. <laughs> just trying to just that will change everything for me. <laughs> yeah. The boat, the boat has sunk for you, Kevin. The boat has sunk for you. <laughs> there was things that were set up, and I thought this is going to get paid off. Where Rucker had to put a jewel in the the hilt of his sword in order to live up to the honor of his ancestors. Mm-hmm. That doesn't come into effect. He never gets a jewel to put into his sword. So it's like, why, why bring that up? Why set up yeah. that as something that he needs? He doesn't need it. Ultimately, he doesn't need the jewel in his sword. And then you don't pay it off. The, the guy got the girl. The girl got the guy. The, the, the spell was broken. 
I, that's all we needed. That's all we need for a kind of a, a, a simple fairy tale back in the 1980s. Simple as that. Beautiful locations. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Amazing soundtrack. Great cast. If this was the first film you saw when you were five and a half instead of Halloween, you now would be just fucking talking about, like, let's reboot it. The first film I saw in the cinema was Jaws The Revenge. Right. I'm very much aware of the flaws of Jaws The Revenge, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't mention that as, like, having nostalgia for me where I would think it's a good movie. So, you know. I like my, it. I know you do. <laughs> yeah, I like this film. <laughs> I like this film. Jaws Revenge is a bad film. This is not a bad film. It is a bad film. It is a bad film. <laughs> it's nice. It is a bad film. No. I mean, it's not a you can like the film. I think I actually think Jaws the Revenge is a more cohesive film. You are retarded. I like this go. fucking film, man. I like this film. <laughs> Alright, well, you can get your revenge on me though, because I think we can jump ahead to the film that I pushed on you to watch. Play a trailer. It all began in this little shop. Oh, damn roses. Where, strange as it seems, something extraordinary happened. I'm afraid it isn't feeling very well today. No, it's not. What kind of a weirdo plant is that, Seymour? Little Shop of Horrors, a story about a boy. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Unless I open a vein. Where did you get such a weird plant? A girl. A florist. I'm telling you, Audrey, he's not a good, clean kind of boy. He's a professional. I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. And a plant. Feed me all night long. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Whoa! Catch me now! I'm just a mean green mother from outer space and I'm playing. I'm just a mean green mother from outer space and it looks like you've been hanged. Yes! Rick Moranis. Man's a total disgrace to the dental profession. Ellen Green. Excuse me. Excuse me what? That's better. Vincent Gardenia, with special guest appearances by Steve Martin, John Candy, and Bill Murray. It's your professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. So, Little Shop of Horrors came out in 1986, directed by Frank Oz. Rick Moranis, who plays Seymour, works in a flower shop and he is desperately seeking to identify some sort of new plant. And he finds this mysterious unidentified plant that which he calls Audrey 2. The plant seems to have a craving for blood and soon begins to sing for his supper. So it's a musical. It's a comedy. It's dark. It's a horror, but it's not really horror. And I learned that there's two very different endings to this film which was a complete shock to me at 12 o'clock last night or this morning. It's based on a 1960 Roger Corman film that's notorious for having been made in two days. 
and also for having the feature film debut of Jack Nicholson in it. It's not very good, but flash forward into the early 80s and Howard Ashman, he remembered seeing the film and he said to his musical partner, Alan Menken, who everybody knows from all the Disney musicals, he said, I remember seeing this film as a kid called Little Shop of Horrors. Alan Menken watched it. He had a flash of inspiration. They went to David Geffen and they said, let's put on an off-Broadway show, which became the musical. And David Geffen, when he was getting into movies, he wanted to turn Little Shop of Horrors into a movie. He'd just done Risky Business and he approached Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg to help him. They were going to do it for a little while. Martin Scorsese wanted to shoot it in 3D. That didn't pan out. Then he went to Frank Oz because of his experience working with Muppets. Frank Oz took a crack at the script and changed certain things to sort of make it feel a bit more bubbly. He introduced the, the chorus girls, the the three Greek chorus girls who sort of take us through the entire story from beginning to end mm. and changed certain aspects of the story. He got rid of Seymour's mother from the play. Uh, she was a big character in the play. She was also sort of like sucking the life out of Seymour and removed some songs. They cut some songs from the musical. And then, although they stuck to the original ending of the musical, they ended up changing that. And I didn't even know that this ending existed in full until you told me you'd seen the director's cut. And I thought, oh yeah, I remember that from the DVD special features. It was sort of like black and white footage and VHS. I knew what had happened. I knew that Audrey, the plant, had won. He defeated everybody. He'd eaten everybody. And him and his other plantlings had taken over the whole world. And it was like a 50s B-movie. But I did not know that they had fully restored it. Yeah. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I was flabbergasted. It entirely changes the tone of the movie. Completely. Yeah, completely. Massively. Where? When did you first encounter this? What's your history with this film, I suppose, is a better way of asking you. I saw it when it came out on DVD. It was around that time when Warner Brothers were, were pushing DVDs way before everybody else. Remember they had those card covers? Mm-hmm. They were like snap cases. Mm-hmm. It was in that time when I would just like, I'd get Empire Magazine and I'd get a DVD on a Friday. And I got the DVD. And I thought, hmm, this could be fun. A 50s B-movie, Frank Oz. He'd made some of my favorite films like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, what have you. And when you're talking about musicals, the one thing they need to have nailed down it's like if you do an action movie you've got to have great action if you do a musical you've got to have great songs and this doesn't have a single dud of a song in the whole film very good I I thank you Will remember the, the, the video box for this this was permanently on the shelf of my video library growing up so nobody was renting it art I don't think anyone was renting it I think that art really stood out to me. So, but also it didn't appeal to me. That's probably, it didn't appeal to, you know, me who was picking up Ladyhawk at the time. And I avoided this film. And I'd heard from you, actually, you were the first person to say to me, you haven't seen Little Shop of Horrors. I heard that track that you played for the musical episode. And I thought, oh, that's kind of catchy. I'm going to catch up with this sometime. And I will say from the very first moment when the the text scrolls up on the screen, I was won over by this film from minute one. And I loved this film. I thought it was... Do you really? Yeah, yeah, loved it. I loved all of the musical numbers. I think... Genuinely, I so it's a very sweet film. Last week we had a very 
stressful week last week, right? And I was driving down the road and with awful thoughts in my head and in amongst all the awfulness, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly Seymour kept playing in my head. All the time, suddenly Seymour, that beautiful number where Audrey, which Audrey won, sings as her I wish song, her kind of like, I, I've, I found him, I found my man. She wants to man. live in a, a beautiful house. And, yeah. yeah, she wants to be, she wants her life to be changed to, to, and to be, she sees, she sees Seymour as the, as the man of her dreams and she projects this future for herself and it's really, really warm and heart-wrenching and so earnest that um, I, just, I just adored it. The reason that people balked against the original ending is because everybody fell in love with Rick Moranis and Ellen Green. And I'm just sort of wondering how it went for you. Yeah, so in, if from my point of view, that was the film, right? So it was. I was like, oh, okay. uh, this is this is how this is going down. And I was tracking the Can story Can we set along. it up for people just to, to, to let people know where the big pivot point happens? Yeah, go on. So in the original release movie the one which it didn't do that well to be honest it made about 39 million at the box office but it became a cult film afterwards with VHS and what have you but when Audrey gets almost attacked and killed by Audrey to the plant Rick Moranis takes her into the alley and in the the new version she dies in his arms in the alley and she tells him you know to feed her to the plant and to keep going on the path that he's going to stay and pursue his dreams no matter what. And he feeds her to the plant. And then he tries to... Then he gets confronted by a guy who was recast in the original version by James Belushi. So James Belushi plays the role in the original theatrical release. But in the other release, it's played by somebody else. And it essentially makes him this devil's pact that he's going to sell these plants to every house in America. And then Rick Moranis gets a backbone and thinks, no, it's not going to happen. I'm going to have to kill Audrey 2. And he goes in to confront him and Audrey 2 bests him. And he eats him alive in this very slow, protracted thing. And then he, Audrey 2 takes over the world. And it's like a new song begins, which is Don't Feed the Plants. Which I'm trying to figure out what the message to that song is, whether it's like don't partake in capitalism or don't get caught up by the rat race, consumerism. But in the original theatrical release... She doesn't die in his arms in the alleyway. He realizes how close he came to losing her. And he says in that moment, like, you're the most important thing. Let's get married. And then he gets confronted by James Belushi, who offers him that devil's pact and says, we're going to have this in every home in America. And he goes in, he fights Audrey too. Uh, There's some sort of reorganization of the action and he eventually electrocutes him. And uh, his last line is, oh, shit. And he blows up. And then Rick Moranis and Ellen Green's character, they run hand in hand into the very stylized dream house. And it ends on a very upbeat note. 93 minutes, done. And it's it's a really fun movie. So where you got the cautionary tale, but they pulled back from the precipice at the last second. So I feel like going the other way and committing so heavily to the very dark ending. It's very bleak. But anyway, that's for people that don't know what we're talking about. So my reaction to the film was that I, 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 was, I was drawn into Audrey One's story and Rick Moranis' story. 
And when the ending unfolded the way it was, I, 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 I just thought, I genuinely, I thought it would, okay, this is a cautionary tale. Rick Moranis' character has done some terrible deeds in order to gain success and fame and fortune. And that because he pursued that action, even though he wants to correct the, his course and he wants to, he wants to, you know, turn the tide, it's too late. Even, uh, it's, it's just too late. You've, you've, you've done the deeds and now we're going to be punished. And it was genuinely tragic for Audrey One in particular. She was the real victim in this for me because throughout the story she has a boyfriend and we learn at the beginning of the story Steve she, Martin we yeah we played who's, who's Steve Martin and he's Hilarious. a dentist and he's he's a biker dentist and we don't get to meet him until maybe halfway through the film and we know that he's abusing her from from the get-go it's probably like the first scene in the film where she come she we see her coming to work with a black guy and we go oh this guy's a fucking prick and then we get to when we get to meet him he's this sadistic dentist with an amazing number in his own right it's fucking brilliant it's so fucking brilliant it's so funny it's so well choreographed it's so well shot the numbers are the so thing about fucking the film. catchy I fucking loved it the direction in this there's, it's, there's so many interesting angles the play and the original movie all took place within the uh, flower shop but Frank Oz came in and he just opened it up and he included the streets and had them, you know, navigating Skid Row and what have you. But the the way that the music numbers are choreographed and shot is is great. Like, Frank Oz is a really skillful director. It's excellent. But, um, yeah, the, uh, Steve Martin is pretty much a scene stealer in this. And then he meets Bill Murray, who is, like, a guy who gets off on being, um, what is it? He, he, you've got a sadist and a sadomasochist I think he's yeah he, he likes to receive the sadism he likes to be on the receiving end so like yeah so there's nothing that Steve Martin can do to him that he isn't like immensely turned on by yeah. and it's hilarious it's very funny it's a very different role for, for Bill Murray but there's so many like pop-up scene stealers Christopher Guest comes into it I remember from the DVD special features you know when you're a walk-on or a, a sort of a day player you don't know what the the tempo is or what the the vibe is of the the movie, and you have to sort of catch up quite quickly. And he delivered his lines naturalistically the first time, and I said, "No, no, no, it's not this kind of movie." He walked out and he came back in, and he was sort of like, "Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting plant. What is it?" It's an orchid. Oh my god! I've never seen anything like it before. No one has. Where did you get it? <laughs> <laughs> he quotes the boy. Oh, God. two dozen roses, or oh, something like that. Then. He's he's such a chameleon. I genuinely didn't know it was him. I just genuinely oh, just really? went. Hmm? And no, also, is, you're forgetting him. the other great cameo scene, and it's the John Candy scene, who is a, a DJ yeah. in the local radio station, where Rick Moranis goes into, um, you know, you know, promote his his discuss or Audrey. There's a moment in that where he's got the plant in the the waiting room, and the plant sees a woman bending over with a red skirt, yeah. and he's. Like, leaning over to try and take a bite out of it. the animatronics in this movie are incredible amazing I was I was like surprised that I didn't see the Henson Company credited credited at the end but I assume Frank Oz being Frank Oz and having been a part of that troupe he had whoever he, whoever was behind it obviously was connected. Lyle Conway did the animatronics and he did work on Dark Crystal and there Muppet Capers so there is that connection there, but they did it all at like at a lower frame rate 
you know, oh, it's okay. it's like impressive how fast they're they're able to animate this inanimate. Yeah, it was it's so the yeah the it's not a goofy prop. It's it's so well it's so well designed, it's so well articulated and performed that it's it's so impressive. It stands the test of time. I made a note of an, in the John Candy um, cameo. I just wrote down John Candy's character is Kevin's spirit animal. I knew you were going to say that. I knew when I saw him, all the sound effects and stuff. I just went, just, John Candy is, is is Kevin with all his, all his little sound effects and all that stuff. I, just, I was chuckling away to myself. Listen, let me give you some more facts because uh, these are things that I think you're going to spark off of. It had an 18 million budget. Then when I did the reshoots, they spent another 2 million on those. They spent two weeks shooting the extra scenes. They had about five months before it was going to be released, so they had to really, like, bang it out. But they originally shot for seven months. Imagine that. Movies these days are made for, like, 23 days. Yeah. Seven full months. And I think, it, you know, it pays off. You just feel like this is a this is a film where they haven't cut corners. It opened in fourth place behind Three Amigos, Star Trek, The Voyage Home, and The Golden Child. It opened to 3,659,000. Yeah. How did it do in the box office overall? Was it considered a flop or a hit, or how did it do? It was considered to be a modest hit. It made thirty-nine million at the box office. Oh, that's pretty good for for considering the original investment. Well, we don't know what the actual budget was. There's a lot of mystery about the film. Even when I was like looking into this, now having been blown away by this restored ending, there are so many sequences that they shot that were cut out and lost. There's like huge dream sequences with Rick Moranis running around like these very stylized sets and, and he's got Audrey and he's spinning her around like she's in a Busby Berkeley musical number like the opening of Temple of Doom that sort of thing that was entirely cut so it looks like dream sequences that you see in The Big Lebowski lots of other like alternate takes and alternate scenes so there's, a, there's still an awful lot on the cutting room floor I'm still Kevin there's, there's something in my head and I, I haven't I suppose I didn't discuss it fully when we were talking about the change of the ending the original ending so the original ending is the the happy ending that's the th- what came out theatrically correct yes okay so I'm trying to re- I, once you sent it to me I'm trying to re-edit that into the film and see how I would feel about that and I think I think if I if you presented that version of the film I would have went oh cool okay happy ending but now that I saw the dark ending, right, which I do think the one note I made about the dark ending was, this is too long. Pacing-wise, this ending, this plants are taking over the world. is like, once they were dead, we should have only a minute or two of this, but it went on for like five minutes, and I was like, okay. It, 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 it went cool. on for more? It went on for ten minutes? Was it ten? Yeah, it was too long, right? Okay, so it's that's... ten minutes longer ten than, mi- between the two cuts. So you can cut, you can cut that in half and have the exact same, uh, exact same ending. But that ending is so was so impactful and bleak that I that I felt like oh wow the other ending is the fake ending so the other ending the happy ending is it's kind of not like, the fake ending the other ending is this, this sort of that the happy ending the happy, where I wish I'd seen the happy ending first that's my point I wish I'd seen the happy ending first but it, but it has a totally different it leaves me with a totally different taste in my mouth. Yeah, well, I don't think I would have liked the original uh, uh, ending that they were intending because it's it's disgusting. It's disgusting when Rick Moranis is slowly going into the mouth of Seymour and 
he's like laughing and Seymour is like horrified and, and screaming. It's like protracted. It's like what you were saying about um sustained. American Wolf is sustained yeah. horror. That is so grim. I'm like, oh he's really he's really been eaten alive here. Yeah. Or when he feeds her to the to the plant. It's so wrong. It's so um Oh that was that's what shocked. It's so tragic. It's so It's fucking- not tragic, it's just it's if she died in the alley, it'd be sad. And he went back in, and, and he fucked up in ways that were true to his character, where greed took him and his eyes off the prize, or whatever. Or he tried to sort of like reason with Audrey too, but he just sort of like um, he gets defeated by pure strength. So when he goes back in and he's leveling up, he's manning up to this thing, and he's realised the error of his ways I just prefer it I just think it's you get the same message but it's not as heavy handed but but then again that's a great song Don't Feed the Plants and <clears throat> the reason why I was trying to like decode it and think what are they trying to say here I do think when people analyse films they can sometimes go overboard and you think that the, everything is a modern day message that I don't think is always there so I don't think that the film is like anti-capitalist I don't think they were thinking that in the mid 80s I think at that stage it was almost like um, rah rah everybody can achieve greatness with capitalism but when the three chorus girls uh, Chiffron, Ronette and Crystal they rise up and it's quite dark mm-hmm. the music is quite somber and you've got the American flag behind them and it's like Patton yeah I'm like what are they saying here is it that the American dream is a myth and to not mistake the American dream for consumerism my big question is Kevin what was the original ending of the I know the film was shot in two days but when did this which was the what was the ending of the original film but what was the more importantly what was the ending of the original musical so did it, it was have, this so it's the bleak it's a bleak ending yeah you see there we but go Frank Oz said the difference between a movie and a play is that when you go to see a play and Audrey gets eaten and Seymour gets killed, that's, that is unpleasant. But at the end, they come out and they do a curtain call and they take a bow and everybody gets to applaud them. Mm-hmm. You don't have that in a movie. So it, uh, it plays differently. You see, I, I would feel if I was, let's say, Alan Menken and... Um, oh, Howard Ashman. Ashman. I, I think I would have felt shafted by the, the the new end, the happy ending in the film because it feels like it's taking the teeth out of what they were doing i i think it pro- it probably is anti-capitalist if you think about that it wasn't written by us it was written by them in the late 70s early 80s or whatever it was and it sounds like they, you know they, they might have been liberal and i think you know there there, there was and this is me speculating so i'm only speculating that there was some sort of anti-capitalist message going on with this it feels like that it feels like rick moranis or anti-conformist in that she doesn't get the dream house the 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 plastic furniture and the two kids but it's bucking against that you see how it's how it's presented it's the, the the dream that we see on screen of her in this house and rick moranis cutting the lawn and all that is very much like living on skid row but it's that dream feels like a 90s, 1950s Americana... Uh, That's when the film is set. Yeah, but it it feels like something that in the 70s and 80s, the culture had, was... It was a counterculture movement, and that was kind of like the 
epitome of everything that they detested this kind of um conservative you know uh, you know cut your grass at the weekend and you know make sure you have the dinner you know they the eating eating their food in front of the, the you know the frozen dinners in front of the tv all that felt like things they were bucking against so it's it does it has a john waters quality where it feels like it's poking fun at the kitschness of that yeah so i think the happy ending kind of takes a little bit of the teeth out of that message because i it it definitely it was impactful to me. I, w- I was shocked. I went, Jesus, they went this fucking dark. Wow. But they're hammering it home. The whole song is don't feed the plants. The plant is re- standing in for something. And Seymour is is literally having his the life sucked out of him. Mm. And it's robbing him of everything that really matters because he wants to achieve and attain and succeed. He wants to break out of this horrible uh, situation he's in working for a, a greedy boss off Skid Row and he can't be with the woman that he loves. She's stuck in an abusive relationship. Uh, so, well, the plant it's is fascinating, the but we're in this... The plant, the plant is the product. So you're feeding, you're feeding this product, you know, this thing. The plant is the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but the metaphor is there. Don't like, feed you know, the podcast. podcast. So it is, it is anti-capitalism. It's like, you know, look, at you, if you... What are you willing to sacrifice for the product, for the riches, the the the, the success, the house, the the perfect wife, and all this sort of stuff? What? How how far are you willing to but go? What's the alternative? They don't give you an alternative argument where it's like Seymour took the wrong path, where he was offered one or the other. Oh yeah, well the thing that I guess it's just a cautionary tale for the audience, which is like if this ever happens to you, if you ever find yourself on Skid Row, watch out for plants. And don't feed them. <laughs> That's kind of no. I. It's a great song. It's which one? The don't feed the plants. Don't feed the plants. Yeah. There isn't a bad number in this entire thing. That's what surprised me the most is like that each and every one of the songs in this were so catchy, just so so much fun. Ah, oh, fuck. This, this is where I good. I don't understand people that just will not watch any musicals whatsoever. This how could you not like this? This is so much fun. I, I'm actually I must get Karen to watch it. That's what I said. I said yeah, I think she would actually really enjoy the film. So I must um, I'm a short horror. The music well. is great. I mean, it's one of the few musicals where I actually have the soundtrack on my um, on my Apple Music, and we'll uh, slip on my red dress and dance around through. <laughs> Suddenly, Seymour. Oh my God! That's no. What's the song that I like? It's the song that they sing they, they recontextualize a lot of their music as well so they moved things around and but it's the uh, Greek chorus Chiffron Ronette and Crystal I think are great they're, they're such great songs yeah so um, yeah I'm delighted you liked it how yeah. many stars on Letterboxd would you give it I would I would give it four stars definitely I we're inverted yeah I definitely would give this four stars I the only th- where I fell down on this version is, of course I watched this version was the fact that you know right at the end I went oh fuck this is fucking heavy please end the film now stop rubbing it it felt like the film was rubbing it in with that final with the plants taking over just please that 50s B movie yeah, ending please 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 just end it now you, 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 you cruel cruel mistress I I would also love to have had the experience of watching watching it with the happy ending first but uh, either way I still think this is a fantastic film it is this is brilliant the craft. downside. This is the downside of the era that we're living in, where 
it used to be people would complain about the reissues to Star Wars where you couldn't get the original films anymore. It was only Lucas was permitting the reissues. So you were stuck with the one with the CG effects added in. And nowadays, whenever there is a director's cut released, that usurps the original. And you can't get the original versions anymore. So I couldn't find the original version of this anywhere online. Wow. I could only get scenes on YouTube that would draw in comparison to the differences. But I have the original on DVD. So it, it, it's weird how we've gotten to that point now where there'll be alternate cuts to films, but you won't have access to both versions. You only have access to the latest version. Hold on to your physical media, folks. That's what, I, what I've done. Absolutely. Will, do you want to do what you did last time and read out a review? This time, can you read out the whole review and not just a top line of it? This is a review from Kieran Hartnett. Okay, Kieran is also a Patreon member and a part of our Discord. And Kieran's review is, he gives us a five-star review, and he says, The best podcast around. If you like films, you love this. The two lads are great crack. That's great, Kieran. Thank you so much for that enthusiastic podcast. Oh, God. I read one from the UK last time. I'm going to read one from the US this time. Oh, good. And it says, The Best Brackets Bits Podcast. This is a fantastic podcast that never fails to entertain and form a garnery. Strange looks from passersby when I randomly and frequently burst out laughing at the banter and weeping at Muppets Morning Jim Henson, or I'm getting all soft and misty eyed at Ditto. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you might even learn some fascinating bits of film history along the way. Go on, give it a go. You'll love it. And that's from Flip Milk. Thank hey. you. That's a really nice one. Hey, that's it. I I'm uh, I loved uh, having discovered Little Hop Shop of Horrors. That was a delight. That's why I'm enjoying this Little series. Little Hop Little Shop of Horrors. Great movie. I'm enjoy- that's why I'm enjoying this series of um, episodes because uh, you, I want to find films that I really like. Fantastic. Goodbye. See ya. Love you. Happy Valentine's Day. It's not, you know, it's not going to be Valentine's Day. No, we'll release it today. I won't do any editing. Just bang it up. So go get it. And here is a clip from the lads' latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode plus one hundred more are available on their Patreon. Mini bits. Another new episode. Kevin, how are you? Hi, honey. How are you? Oh, you know, I've got this. I've got my corns sorted out. I went to the Chiraptist the other day, and uh, she Your said, "Corn, uh, my corns." Did you, you ever get corns? No. Did you know what a corn is? Yeah, it's a bunion on your foot, isn't it? Yeah, like in between your toes and stuff like that. Do you, do you not wear any shoes like around the house you walk no, barefoot? I, I, I wear no. It's the opposite. GA shorts. It's the opposite. I wear incredibly tight shoes. 
like those Chinese women oh. who get their feet bound, who had their feet bound, like, you know, before the turn of yeah. this last century. And so they had incredible corns and bunions. This is a great opener for a mini bits episode where we get people disgusted. Squally, it's episode 73 of the mini bits. <laughs> I'm Kevin, your Will. This is yeah. our Patreon podcast. Thank you to all our lovely patrons. Yeah. A few of you have jumped in recently. I don't know what we said. We try to goad people into joining up every single episode. And then every so often, it's like a lot of people join because of one specific episode. And yeah. I'm like, what did we, how did we say it? What did we say on that episode? It's different <laughs> to the other 270 episodes. Maybe it didn't go. sound as desperate. Maybe we said, don't join. Maybe reverse psychology. That's how we should do it. Reverse psychology. Don't join up to our patron. Don't. It's, <laughs> cancel. You don't des- Everybody cancel. <laughs> you don't deserve to be in this group. We don't want you. We don't we like don't the look need of you. you. We, don't, we don't need anybody. <laughs> it's just us. It's absolutely just us. Hey, should we tell people? We, we did, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say it on mic, especially so early. We did an interview with the Irish Examiner last Friday. We did. Yeah. And uh, how do you think yeah. I, how do you think I did? I, I I think you did all right. Like you didn't interrupt me once. So I was <laughs> delighted with how I came across. But, you know, there's no sort of time limit on this. We don't know when it's going to get posted. One of our friends was saying, Kathy at the cinema was saying that their interview with, did they do the examiner as well? It was six uh, months yeah. before it posted. And, and the Guardian, I'm pretty sure. They were, they were profiled in the Gar- Guardian as well. Yeah. But we don't do any really promotion. Like nah. we don't do anything. Well, this is our first time getting any sort of like proper coverage, which is going to be mad. So um, uh, listen to all you listeners who have uh, found us before we explode. You're, 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 you're an OG. Bust. You're an OG <laughs> listener before Kevin starts getting gold chains from all his Patreon dash. I think I'm more of a silver than a gold. I think oh, yeah. my uh, undertones suit more silver. But, uh, yeah. I just want to die. Those are my Prince Albert. <laughs> Your hat? Yeah. I want Speaking of, of the, which. I want one of those diamond studs in my tooth. That's all I want. So I can go bing whenever I'm on a call. Oh, uh, yeah. Bing. I usually just, you know, wink and like glint. Yeah. Like starlight twinkle. <laughs> Speaking of which, I interrupted you. What, what, we, what, did, what did you want to speak of? Which? Start the time. Oh. I forgot. You may as well. Because the timer. They, all, all these lucky loos are listening in and, and they're wondering, what are we going to be talking about? But we have to start talking about them after Yeah, we, we say goodbye. But look, I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, you've seen a few things. You've seen the new Godzilla film. Yes. I've seen the first Omen. Uh, I saw Scoop as well. That, oh, uh, we're looking Netflix forward to watching thing. that. Okay. Okay. I'll save my thoughts. And I'm... Right. Um, what else did I see? I made notes, but sure. You it doesn't did. really matter. I think I saw it. And I was going to go through all the summer releases and see what oh, takes your fancy. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward because I don't actually know what's what's on the horizon. So um, I'm Well, the Joker 2 trailer came out today. I saw it. Yes. I watched that. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Chicago. Yeah. It's kind of like you see it's all very much in the mind's eye. It, they're calling it a jukebox musical. Am I right in saying that? I think you're right in saying that. So, look, hey, listen, uh, I actually, what it, what it did remind me of <laughs> was that I want to watch, rewatch The Joker because I saw it in the cinema and I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. It was 
a kind of a bold new direction. Uh, I'm just going to go back and watch the episodes from the Batman 66 show, the Joker episodes. Oh yeah, that's going to be... Just to fill me in like on the lore. Get up to speed. Get you right up to speed. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll be there going, where where are all the guys in the purple suits with the masks? When are they going to show up? And like, it's a bit of a weird time though, where we have the Penguin TV show with Colin Farrell coming out, which is a totally different canon version of the Penguin. Then you have this offshoot of Joker, which is its own universe entirely. Mm. And then you have the old Batman films that you can watch. Right. And, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's just, I don't know. I'm kind There's of so many IP. But like this, just everywhere. What, well, what's happened is the world, the comic book world has very much entered the, the film world. It's where you could have different runs, totally different runs of a character by it's different insane. authors and there would be totally different riffs on it and stuff. Oh, oh this is the insane. thing. Kevin, so I'm only catching up on this. You mentioned it to me on a on a pod, on a podcast. What was it on one of those uh, it was the last, show? It was the last mini bits. Uh, I you, think. you said everyone's describing stuff as insane recently. And have you started noticing it though? Only 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 with people trying to rise you. That's the only type only where place where I've noticed people no, people on Discord are trying to every, rise you. Oh my god. Oh my god. I could start posting though like um tweets, comments, TikToks. Uh, articles, anything insane is everywhere. This is insane. That's insane. It's insane. There was a festival just going on about this insane lineup. I was okay. like, oh, it's a mentally ill lineup. Okay, <laughs> it's just it's it's everywhere. And the other, th- do you know, the other thing that's also bothering me lately. Wow. wow. And this has been bothering me for years and years and years. It used to be that everyone used to misspell definitely. They'd go defiantly. Okay. Oh, it's defiantly whatever. They would just they were morons. But no. <laughs> I just keep noticing everyone keeps spelling a lot as one word, A-L-O-T, a lot. Where has, where have they gotten into their heads that a lot is one word? It's the same way that people will write every time as one word. What's the one that you've, you've pulled me up on a few times and I can't get it right? Compliment. Compliment. I can't, (laughs) but I can't get it right. It's like the you I. can, because I told you the other day. Yeah, and I went searching for it and I couldn't find it because I had to actually had to an, use it. If there's an I in compliment, it's yeah. I'm paying you oh, a compliment. That's a good way to remember it. Okay, good. And then compliment. I, I wrote that to you. But you did. And I went to try and find it because I was I would find myself writing the word compliments. And I went, shit, Kevin. But, I, but you, you gave me a thumbs up, which meant in my world that, yeah, I read that. Thanks. But I did, right? I'm talking about a couple of days later when I was faced with the exact same hurdle of writing the word compliment, I went, okay, what did Kevin say again about compliment? There's an I and the E. What did he say? So I went searching for it and I found it, I think. And I went, oh, the I is paying me a compliment or I'm giving you a compliment. It's insane how little you can retain information. It's insane. (laughs) Come here, let's talking about what we watched. Come on. Did you start the timer? Yeah, it's it's gone. It's ticking. It's ticking down. The world's going oh, to explode. You know, I have to put in the sound effect. I have to. I have to line oh. up all my sound effects. When you said start I the timer, like, I have a whole it's... fucking. I have a whole soundboard. Here. Okay. Ah. Jesus Christ! Where's my fucking? What? Where's my ding dang ding? Here we go. The timer has started. There we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Right. 